This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. Every morning, I eat a pink lady apple. And usually, I remember to wash it before taking a big bite. I do this because I'm worried about pesticides and other chemicals. According to the latest data, nearly 4% of apples tested in Australia had pesticide residue over the maximum legal limit. And overall, we're relatively lax when it comes to pesticides. We still use dozens of chemicals that are banned in other countries. So, is Australia's approach to pesticides causing us harm? And aside from washing our apples, is there more that the agriculture industry and the government should be doing to keep us safe? Today, Australia's pesticide problem. It's Thursday, the 13th of October. So, Anne, you've been looking at pesticides and herbicides that are sold in Australia, but no longer sold in the UK and Europe because they're deemed too dangerous. And there are others that are just the subject of really big debate about their safety in general. Can you tell me a bit about them? Well, the one you've probably most likely heard of is something called Roundup. Anne Davies is Investigations Editor at Guardian Australia. Now, Roundup is a very popular herbicide. Roundup herbicide by Monsanto. There's never been a herbicide like it before. And it's the most widely used weed killer on earth. So you've probably heard about it and you've probably seen it in the supermarkets, no matter where you live. Roundup, the herbicide that gets to the root of the problem. But in the past decade, we've seen a real controversy developing around its use. And that's because of concerns about its potential health effects, particularly alleged links with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Right, so tell me about these concerns and when it comes to Roundup. Well, that, um, all the products, and they're things like uh, Roundup and Zero, have an active ingredient that's called glyphosate. Concerns about glyphosate crystallised in 2015 after a review by the World Health Organization's cancer research arm, and it concluded that glyphosate was probably carcinogenic to humans. Mm. So this prompted the EU to give it a shorter approval period, and it's now under review again with results due fairly soon. Mm. And, of course, some other countries have taken a more proactive stance, like Vietnam, which has opted to ban it. And Germany has said that they're going to phase it out by 2024. Mm. So in the US, there are more than 100,000 people who've brought cases against Bayer, which is um, the company that now owns the patent for Roundup. And they're alleging that it's caused their predominantly um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So there's been many, many cases. Bayer has taken the approach of settling most of them before they reach court. Mm. So Bayer continue to say that it is safe. And when they make the settlements, they do that on the basis that they say it's safe, but they want to end the case. What is happening with glyphosate in Australia? It's being used quite extensively in agriculture. If you go to the hardware store, you can buy it here. And that's because in Australia, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority has 
declined to formally review glyphosate. So they've looked at it in the past and said, no, we think it's fine. However, there are, of course, other things happening. Um, For instance, Morris Blackburn is running a class action, which will probably reach the courts next year. And it's got some 700 people who've signed up to be part of that action. Mm. Can you tell me about this regulatory body that approved glyphosate? Who are they? So the APVMA is Australia's national regulator for pesticides and veterinary chemicals, and that's things used in farming and in food production. And it's responsible for approving the use of new products in Australia. It approves the chemicals to go onto the market, the actual usage of them, how they're used on farms or in parks or whatever, falls to the state environmental protection agencies and their agriculture departments. So there's a very, very complex system of regulation. So it sounds like the Australian regulator has taken a different approach when it comes to glyphosate than other countries. Have we seen this with other agricultural chemicals in Australia? Yes, we have. So there are more than 70 chemicals that are banned or no longer in use in Europe that are still in use here. And many of these are in household products, not just used in agriculture. And they can be things Mm. like snail pellets, tomato dust, various pesticides that you can pick up, fungicides, all sorts of things that are available in hardware stores. Mm, You can get it from your local Bunnings, essentially. That's right. So at The Guardian, we compiled a list of 12 AgVet chemicals, as they're called, uh, that are the most widely used products here, but which are banned in Europe. And uh, we called these the Dirty Dozen because it's a snappy title. (laughs) Uh, So they include things like uh, paraquat. Now, paraquat is a highly poisonous weed killer that's been linked in some studies to Parkinson's disease. Mm. And the jury's still out a bit on that. So a number of countries have taken the approach that given its risks, um, it should be banned. And they inc- there's 50 countries who've banned it, but we still allow it here. Mm. Now, Anne, we won't be able to go into all 12 of the dirty dozen, but are there any more that really stand out to you? So neonicotinoids, um, now they are a new generation of pesticides that are not so harmful to humans Uh, but they are very toxic to insects. This family of pesticides has been blamed for the dramatic fall in numbers of European honeybees. And the problem is they cause neurotoxic symptoms in the bees and they forget how to get to their hives. And so then it causes hive collapse because the bees haven't returned with honey for the queen and and of course, bees are absolutely crucial to agriculture. Without them, we'll see dramatic fall off in productivity. So that's a worry for Europe, and they have banned it since 2018. Mm. There's also a current review going on in the US where they've also seen um, quite disastrous fall-offs in bee numbers as well. But in Australia, it's still allowed. Now, the reason behind that is that they say well, we haven't seen those sort of falls in honeybee numbers. But there hasn't been that much science done on it. 
Right, but what about the 70 or so chemicals that Australia has approved and other countries have not? Do we know what impact their widespread use in this country is having? The big thing I was surprised about doing this investigation was how little data there was available and how there were a lot of agencies that were supposedly responsible, but when you asked them what they did, they pointed the fingers at other agencies. (laughs) So, for instance, you know, people may think, well, my food gets monitored. Exported food gets monitored for pesticide residues, but domestically our food is only intermittently monitored by the supermarket chains Mm. and by the markets that sell vegetables. They only check once a year for each grower. So it's not a very thorough system. Right. So in this patchy system, though, what do we know about the amount of pesticides that are ending up in our food? Meat gets tested regularly for export. It does pretty well. But interestingly, when we looked at the survey done by the Department of Agriculture, 7% of pears and nearly 4% of apples that were being tested for export were found to have more pesticide residue than the maximum legal limit. Mm. Now, when you think about that, that's one in 14 pairs is over the pesticide residue limit. Mm. The regulators will tell you we've set the limits really low and it's okay, but some of our products have much higher pesticide residue levels, like permitted levels, than, say, in Europe. So, So we have a quite high tolerance here. Right. So there's big questions about the amount of pesticides that are ending up in our food. Mm. What are the other impacts that people are concerned about from these pesticides? The other problem, of course, is in the environment. There is no agency that really looks at this issue in a systemic way. Mm. So we have the environmental protection agencies in each state which are responsible for pesticide usage and they're responsible for things like spray drift when a crop duster goes over and it blows onto a nearby field or onto a school or whatever. Mm. So they're responsible for investigating those incidents. But in fact, it's often the community or scientists at nearby universities who blow the whistle on pesticide residues in waterways or in soil. Are there some prominent examples of where this has happened, where the community has had to raise the alarm about these chemicals seeping into Mm. the environment? Well, the best known one is probably the blueberry farms up in Coffs Harbour. You'll probably remember Coffs as synonymous with bananas. The big banana. Yeah, the big banana, exactly. But now when you go there, you'll see all these blueberry bushes going up hills, covered in nets, and they're on quite steep slopes. And one of the concerns has been all the runoff from the blueberry farms. So they use a lot of fertiliser and they also use a lot of pesticides. Researchers have found that the runoff of nitrites and nitrate levels into creeks feeding into the Hearns Lake catchment, which is one of the major catchments there, were up to 695 times higher during the high rainfall events than they are during dry weather. And these levels were as high as the worst rivers in China. Wow. Fertilisers in the waterways are a really big problem because they lead to blue-green algal blooms and all sorts of bad environmental effects. 
But then more recent testing has shown that there is runoff of pesticides as well. Mm. What does this mean for the local environment and the local community when you have these levels of runoff? Well, the big fear with pesticide runoff, they're using neonicotinoids and it's going into the lake and it's a breeding ground for baby prawns and oysters. And one of the scientists I spoke to up there said, well, Hearns Lake isn't dead, but it's nearly dead. And that's really concerning because that lake is directly adjoining a marine national park, um, which is one of the areas where there's, you know, a huge amount of biodiversity. You can quickly see how damage to the lake could have far-reaching effects on other industries like the fishing industry, one of the biggest industries in that area of the North Coast. How common is it for the state regulators, the state EPAs, to step in when there is evidence that these chemicals are harming our local environments? Prosecution is pretty rare. So, for instance, the Coffs Harbour community made 130 incident reports before the EPA stepped in. And over the past three years, there's only been two successful prosecutions for pesticide offences in New South Wales. So mostly they issue notices, um, you know, cease and desist notices, things like that. It's rare for there to be a big song and dance over this. In Victoria, there was one really interesting case where a flower farmer at Torquay had sprayed the ground just before he started planting seeds and it reacted, causing this gas cloud to drift over the nearby residents. They suffered vision impairments, sore throats, breathing difficulties, headaches, nausea, and three people had to be taken to hospital and the grower pleaded guilty and was fined $70,000. They were immensely remorseful about their behaviour. But, you know, these prosecutions are few and far between. That story sounds like something from a science fiction horror movie, Anne. I mean, (laughs) I think most people would assume that there's someone keeping a close eye on this, but it sounds like all too often left up to the community to do that work. Yeah, well, I think this is probably the most serious problem, that they're we really rely on scientists in universities to do this testing. There's no regular scientific screening of the environment and the impact of pesticides. Next, why does Australia still use pesticides and other chemicals that are banned in other countries? On October 17, join me, Ben Doherty, for Guardian Australia's new podcast series, Ben Robert Smith versus the Media. Australia's most decorated living soldier, Ben Robert Smith, is suing three Australian newspapers for defamation over articles he says falsely accuse him of committing war crimes. A picture of me is stone just flaking away with bullet cracks because all I did was serve my country, that's it. Depending on the outcome, the result will have immense ramifications, either for the future of investigative journalism in this country or for the reputation of Australia's military and of a man who has been venerated 
as a modern-day war hero. You can find it here on Full Story on Monday. And it sounds like Australia's regulator is a bit more lax than other countries. Why is our regulation of these chemicals so different? Okay, well, the reason put forward by lobbyists and by the agriculture industry and a number of farmers is that, you know, basically Australia is just more buggy than other countries and that we need to use more pesticides to control these insects. And you've probably seen pictures of those huge plagues of locusts flying across western New South Wales. That's the sort of thing they mean. Mm. The second reason is that they say Australian farming practices are different to Europe. So Europe's got farms close to cities. Um, It's very intensive agriculture. Here we have agriculture in the country and we also have very thin soils. So there's um, best practice is that you should not till the soil too much to get rid of weeds. So instead, uh, Australian farmers tend to rely more on pesticides. What do other people say about Australia's system and, and what's behind our kind of more lax regulation? So from people I've spoken to, the Australian regulatory system is so out of step with the needs of consumers and the risk to health and the environment, that it really needs to be overhauled. Hmm. So while the national regulator might be rigorous in its assessment of new products coming onto the market, it seems extremely reluctant to review products that are already on the market. And when it does, those reviews can take decades. Like there are some from not, that began in 1997. Hmm. <laughs> in the meantime, all those chemicals remain in use and we won't take it off the market until it's there's unequivocal evidence of damage. So that leads to a system where chemicals have been registered in Australia and they're later found to be harmful or have questions about them and they're still on the shelves. And how does our approach compare to other places in the world where some of these chemicals are banned? So the European approach is really quite different. They have 10-year reviews with the onus being on the manufacturers of these products to prove that their products are safe. It's called the precautionary principle. And sometimes the manufacturers withdraw their products voluntarily rather than having to go through the hoops that would be necessary to prove that, say, for instance, their products won't affect fish in nearby waterways. Mm. But Australia uses what's called the risk hazard approach, which really puts the onus on the regulator to demonstrate that the product is dangerous. And that means that they tend to stay on the market for a really long time while the reviews are taking place. Mm. Why do those reviews take so long and, in some cases, decades, as you've pointed out? The regulator says that basically... They take a long time because the science is always changing, it's complex, and that means that the reviews will get pushed out as more science becomes available. Mm. And it's true, there are really deep scientific debates about a lot of these products. 
Mm. But others say that the flaws in the system are by design. So I spoke to a woman called Jo Imick, who's a convener of the National Toxics Network, and she's an environmentalist who's been campaigning in this space for a very long time. She says that it's a deliberate strategy to ensure chemicals under a cloud overseas can continue to be sold in Australia. She says that we're a dumping ground for pesticides that have been long banned by other more cautious countries, which is ultimately not to our competitive advantage and nor is it protective of public health. Why would we want to be a dumping ground for these chemicals and who benefits from that? Well, Australia is a very efficient agricultural producer and these AgVet products are very embedded in the way we farm in Australia. So they're also relatively cheap so that, you know, spraying a field prophylactically to get rid of insects is not an expensive thing to do. Mm. And I think farmers are, to some extent, not willing to move away and experiment with new systems. Mm. And look, the AgVet industry is extremely powerful. It runs a big office in Canberra. They're constantly lobbying and they work hard to keep this issue out of the public eye. Mm. They also pay for the national regulator. So they pay fees for each of the products they want to get registered. And this provides 90% of the revenue for the regulator. So it's a user pays regulator. It's very close to the industry. It's struggled to um, have really meaningful consultation with consumers and the environment. And as a result, I think there's a bit of a question mark about its independence. Mm. What does the regulator have to say about this potential conflict of interest, Anne? So the regulator says it uses world's best practice. We continue to focus on the very important task that this inquiry is concerned with, ensuring the APVMA remains free of influence from all parties and maintain the highest quality regulatory services to keep our communities, our animals and our environment safe. It's only driven by the science uh, that it has codes in place, that it has declarations of conflicts of interest. There's a range of um, a, a range of mechanisms that we have that help to maintain the independence of the regulator. And that gives me great comfort. Thank you. Uh, can the APVMA? So, Anne, considering these kind of systemic issues with state and federal regulators that you've outlined. Is there anything that the regular person can do to kind of limit their exposure or their risk to some of these chemicals? Now, that is a pretty contentious issue. A lot of people like to eat organic food because they're really worried about it. But we talked to um, Dr Ian Musgrave, who's a toxicologist at University of Adelaide, and he said the risk from residues of pesticides in Australian produce was, in his words, extraordinarily low because a lot of them are designed so that when they're exposed to sunlight or water, they'll break down rather than accumulate in the food. Overall, I think the takeout for consumers is wash your food, even your organic food, because they use organic pesticides. And that means put it in running water, give it a good scrub if you can without damaging it, and then it's 
safer to eat. And I've got to say, I've changed my habits since I did this research. (laughs) I can imagine Um, you would. (laughs) I have been known to open the box of raspberries and just pop one in my mouth, but now I won't be doing that. No more. Right, but outside of washing out our fruit and vegetables, are there moves from the government and moves from the agricultural industry to reduce the impact of these chemicals on our environment more broadly? What can they do? There are a number of farmers who are moving away from using pesticides and looking at regenerative farming and pesticide-free farming. And there's now quite a lot of science around this. It's not just a cottage industry. So we came across all sorts of really interesting suggestions from scientists, including scientists at CSIRO. And they are saying that we've got to stop just the routine use of pesticides. So they've come up with things like little insect traps that can be deployed in the farm and then they can recognise what sort of pest it is. They'll send a message to your phone and then you can go out and spray. And that would dramatically reduce the amount of pesticide use. Other suggestions are moving to what are called biopesticides. So these are things like diseases that will attack the actual pest or using natural predators in the field. So it might be that you seed spiders through your field, but it's much harder for farmers. And this is the thing that scientists all said to me, you know, we've got to convince people that, first of all, it's a good thing to reduce pesticide use. And secondly, this is a viable alternative, even though it takes more work and you may have some crop failures as you learn how to do it. What do we risk if we don't tackle this big shift head on and soon? Well, I think the risk is to our trade. You know, we want to grow the agriculture industry in Australia to $100 billion a year by 2030, and we're going to be reliant on selling food to Europe. It's going to come up with our trading partners. And in Europe, there is a really big push to reduce pesticide use. France wants to cut its pesticide use by 50% by 2025. And on another level, there is mounting evidence that some of these have serious human health impacts and also very serious impacts for the environment. So there could be really serious impacts if we continue down the course that we're going down. That was Anne Davies, Investigations Editor for Guardian Australia. You can read the full series on pesticides called Toxic Nation, Australia's Pesticide Problem at theguardian.com. And we've linked to that on the full story page as well. That series includes a really helpful rundown of the dirty dozen chemicals that are still sold in Australia and also a guide to reducing your own pesticide exposure, which I imagine will be very helpful for a lot of people. Okay, that's it for today. This episode was produced by Joe Koning, Rafka Tuma, with additional production by Karishma Lusria. Sound design and mixing by Tim Jenkins. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Matnioni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassie, and me, Laura Mefiotes. Okay, catch you next time. <laughs>